0: Okay, I'm going out on this to take out Steve.
1: So you're on, Jason. Oh wow, I'm on, and we're taking out Steve. He's. I wonder how much he's going to like that. You know what? Uh, how are it's, you?
0: I'm back now. I, I I took Steve out really fast this time. It doesn't always work that way. Oh, funny, <laughs> Jason Chef. I feel like you're my new friend, but like, I feel like I've known you forever. Cause we, we have all this history in common, right?
1: Yeah. I love that. That's what happens. Uh, we've all been, you know, in this industry and in Los Angeles at different times. And, and it's one, one family, it's one big and getting smaller family. So I love that we've connected.
0: Okay. So I do too. I do too. And, um, and we are part of a family that we'll talk about in a little bit. But your family, you have, you have iconic lineage. Can can you tell everybody a little bit about your dad and and where you come from?
1: Yes, uh, my father Jerry Sheff is one of the greatest bass players that ever walked the planet. And um, he he and my mother met when he was in the Navy down in San Diego in the early uh-huh. '60s, and uh, they. He had me and my brother, Darren, uh, and got married, uh, in 1962, um, and they lasted a few years and he moved to Los Angeles, actually Palm Springs first. And we stayed in San Diego, um, my mother and, in what ended up being, I had a, another brother from a different father earlier, uh before me Todd is two years two years older than me and then uh, Lauren is the youngest and so there's four of us and so we all were in San Diego um, and really one one family you know and then dad came up to Los Angeles and became really I'd I'd call him like the second string wrecking crew bass player there was Carol Kay um, Joe Osborne and my dad worked a lot in those circles with all of the guys earl palmer playing mm-hmm. jim gordon um you know i didn't really know the extent of his discography um until later i just knew that i went to see the fifth dimension i was i think well wow. it was 68 so i was six years wow. old and they came to town and dad was playing bass with them wow I'll never forget meeting. I can't remember their names, but the big guy, and I just first, remember McCoo, Mar- Marilyn McCoo. Mar- what was his name? Billy Davis. Okay, yeah, yeah. So those two, and then there was the big guy, who I walked through the um, backstage area, and they put the the um, the backstage pass to get you in the. Backstage area at that time was a rubber stamp that was a dollar sign.
0: <laughs> wow,
1: there were no like laminates or pass or anything. So in order to like, okay, these guys are okay. They had a rubber stamp. Stamp my hand. It was a dollar sign. I'll never forget the the big guy in um, fifth dimension looked at me and said do you know what that is? And I'm like, no. And he told me. And so it really just amazing how a memory will come back. So did like you
0: that. appreciate Jason, by the way, I just sent you the the actual link for the show. If you want to throw that up on your thing. Sure. Do, you, do you, Did you appreciate at the time who your father was, who these musicians were? Okay. So like, were you into music right from the get-go? Were you playing? Were you singing? When did that happen for you?
1: So I, at six years old, of course, not playing bass, but I was starting to. I think it was either right then or right after that that I was plunking around on a friend's piano. My best friend up the street, Danny Pritchard, and his mother was a, a piano teacher, and they were. He was learning things like uh, "Pierre Gents Suite" in the Hall of the Mountain King. Right. And I learned it. So I was watching him play. And so i I started learning that picking it so, out. So
0: you learned it, you you learned it by ear?
1: Yeah, I was watching him and just went and picked it out. And his mother called my mother and said, Linda, you should get him some piano lessons because he's he's got some talent. So we got lessons and I never practiced, you know. I was I was So you was, were
0: like every other kid.
1: Yeah, basically. I was reading. So I was just playing by ear until all of a sudden I couldn't sight read. And she, she was on to me and said, she was really cool. Can't remember her name. I'm pretty good with names too, but Mm. um, I remember her sitting me down and saying, you need to make a decision. And by the way, what you have is a very strong gift. So neither, you're not going to, you're not going to say the wrong answer, but if you want to do what I'm doing, you got to practice this stuff, which was basically reading. And I wish I had taken to it, but my ear was just so, in tune with that and and so wait i
0: have to stop you ronald townsend everyone's saying ronald townsend so i gotta that was he was the big guy in the fifth dimension
1: ronald townsend yes okay everybody's
0: everybody's commenting so i just and i don't think
1: he's around any longer i wanted to reach out to um because i'll get to the other ones that i have reached out to but um at any rate, okay so
0: i didn't mean to interrupt so so okay so yeah
1: So I um, so I uh, I was sitting in the audience and, you know, I knew my father was a musician. Great. But um, all of a sudden, I had met Ronald Townsend and, and the others. Actually, it was probably it was probably Marilyn and Billy, just a friendly hello. They were all very sweet. And so I saw these people as just, you know, the people my dad was working with. Right. And we're sitting in the audience. And when they played, uh, this is the age of Aquarius. And up, yeah. up, and away, I flipped <laughs> out and said, that's them.
0: Oh, and you haven't put it. it together yet. No. Oh, 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 no. oh, oh, oh.
1: So I flipped out thinking mm-hmm. this, this. Yeah, this is big time. My dad's a star.
0: Oh, and oh, nice. A
1: year later. Mm-hmm. He came to take me and Darren up to Big Bear for Christmas. And he when he picked us up, it was 1969. And I said, Hey, how how are my friends in the fifth dimension? You know? And he said, Well, I don't work with them any longer. And I was heartbroken thinking that did he get fired or something? Because <laughs> I have I have a I have another job and I think it's probably gonna be better. And I said, Really? What is it? And he says, I'm playing with Elvis Presley. <laughs> so were you okay
0: now were you an Elvis
1: fan no neither was he by the way
0: neither was I okay okay I know well
1: well, here's here's the cool thing my dad and he was married to a wonderful lady named Vivian um and the story goes because they were hippies right they were cool my dad was a jazz musician an upright player that was transitioning to to electric bass to do sessions in LA right And, and he um So he was just cool. He was he was cool. And so when Elvis came back after the military and did his comeback special and he didn't know if anybody was going to like him and and his fans had stuck around.
0: Right. That
1: black leather suit special (laughs) just lit it up. And so they reached out to um, Elvis, reached out to James Burton and said, put the put the best band that you can put together. So he started you know, assembling the group and he called my dad and said, Jerry. So he'd done a lot of sessions with him and said, Jerry, I want you to come on audition. So dad goes to into Vivian and says, James Burton called me and he wants me to come <laughs> on audition for Elvis Presley. And 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 Vivian's going, Really? You're not gonna go, are you? Or something like that. Maybe I'm, I'm gonna go. But that was the vibe. Like, you know, like <laughs> this is a joke. He goes, Well, I, you know, I'm I'm gonna go down and you know, and honor, you know, that. And he said he walked in the room, and that man's. You've always heard this, but from my father, he said that man's presence was just unbelievable. There was no bullshit, you know, trying to pose or posture. He didn't need to. He was mm. just so real, and so right there, and and, uh, and 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 just. My dad said, I just really dug him, personally, from the moment I met him. Wow. And he said to him, he said, you know, Elvis. I don't really know a lot of your material. Wow. And how many many stars would just be like, this guy's out of here. But here's what's so cool. Because James had told him about him, too. Right. He said, said, Elvis, I don't, I think he said, I don't really know any of your material. And Elvis said, "Well, well, what do you like to play, Jerry? And dad said, I like to play the blues. And Elvis said, well, let's play some blues. They played some blues. Done deal he had the gig. he went home and he said he walked in and vivian he looked at her and said and vivian's told me this story it's just great when she tells me he she he said you're not gonna believe this (laughs) but i took the gig she goes what (laughs) and he goes you'll see you'll see she said the same thing she went down and the guy was just unbelievable this is 1969 he was Coming back <laughs> in his prime in great shape, wasn't all off into all what happened to him. Right. And he was incredible.
0: Oh incredible. wow.
1: So, so that's what my dad, my dad's part of the TCB band, which is just for any of you for all you youngsters out there, <laughs> uh go check out Elvis Live Madison Square Garden and listen to that band. Listen to what my dad's doing at the end of Suspicious Minds. Oh like ridiculous right so then i i gotta say one more Wait,
0: thing wh- and what year is that
1: uh probably 72 ish or something like wow. that any of like the you know even up till the end it was the van was <laughs> a so I, I, w- I was with a buddy having dinner one night and he was invited to be on um on k- on love lines on k rock yeah during the 90s and um and he said, hey, you want to come up with me? And I'm going, sure. You know, I wasn't invited to be a guest or anything. <laughs> I remembered the, the DJ, his name is, is Poor Man. And I had heard he was a huge Elvis fan. So I'm going, well, you know, because this is K-Rock, Edgy Station, I'm in Chicago. I'm going, I'm wondering if they're going to be going, you know, what's this guy doing here? Everybody's <laughs> worried about being cool, right? But that's what's so great about all of a sudden running into, into circles, the real world-class not caught up in that it's like it's just music it's competence and everybody's everybody you're in the club right at a certain level so i I walk in my buddy chad um walks in and then i walk in and they're they're playing 25 or 6 to 4 on the radio and i'm going whoa so i they're actually showing respect okay and and poor man says and uh, dr drew was the resident psychologist for love lines on it he wasn't dr drew
0: right right right.
1: and so i walk in and they said a poor poor man says hey man jason what have you been up to and i'm going wow suddenly i'm a guest on this thing i go well we just got back from japan you know and i said but i don't want to talk about me i want to and they're like you know thinking i was you know egoing out or something i said i want to talk about my dad and i and and they're looking at me i said I looked at right at poor man and said, my dad was Elvis Presley's bass player, and he (laughs) lost his mind. I said, but it gets better. (laughs) Now, remember, there was a band. The other guest that was invited for that episode was a band called the Nymphs. And it was this girl and her boyfriend named Jet and the the guitar player. So the two of them were on the show and they're sitting there as this, this is going down. And I, and so I said, my dad was Elvis's bass player. And I said, but it gets better. And I said, my dad was the bass player on the Doors LA woman album. And this kid jet on national, (laughs) if not worldwide radio says, dude, what's it like having a dad who's cooler than you? I couldn't wait to tell my father that. And he loved it a dad cooler than you i'm writing it down <laughs> Yep.
0: <laughs> okay so you had a dad cooler than you well that's arguable now but well i don't know I, yeah he, that's the doors and elvis i don't know that's kind of yeah hard to,
1: <laughs> yeah yeah
0: yeah that's kind of hard to Jesus. It, it is
1: it's he wins he wins yeah
0: i I've yeah told him. Oh, he's, my God.
1: he's so sweet because he didn't sing he didn't he didn't you know he he didn't become successful as a vocalist so whenever I hear over the years you know and he says it in front of people he goes you know Jason Jason's better than me I said impossible dude man that's never going to happen you know you are the gold standard and he is so
0: wow and did you did you hmm. are you is your bass playing influenced by him Or are you completely your own person in that regard?
1: I'm my own person because- Oh wait, you're
0: putting the bass down. We're going to have to have you do something before you put that bass down.
1: Okay, here's a-
0: Here, do something, play something for us. Sing, and you have to sing with it. Okay. Okay.
1: Riders on the storm. No, you have to- Riders (laughs) on the storm. No, you have to do a Jason, you have to do Jason. Into this house of wine. So that's that's the one that my dad played on, right? That so, is uh, so crazy. Isn't that cool? I played that with Robbie Krieger um at, at the whiskey Sunday night. He he was playing Sunday night and he said, Man, will you come down? Because I always play writers and I play LA Woman that my dad played on. With oh Robbie Krieger God. at the oh. whiskey, they were the house band for the oh, at, Chicago was the house band too for a while. Hendrix came in saw them at the whiskey and took them on the road with them to open for them. The stories I heard of the guys in Chicago on tour with Jimi Hendrix.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Janis Joplin, all of them. It's incredible.
0: That's all right. Play something. We're going to talk so much more.
1: Okay, let's see.
0: You have to sing.
1: Waiting for the break of day Searching for something to say Losing lights against the sky Giving up, I close my eyes Sitting cross like one
0: father Twenty-five or
1: six to four, ah, yeah. There's one thing.
0: That's a pretty damn good thing. And and wasn't that was that your first was that your first recording was that your first hit with Chicago that that, that you guys re re released.
1: You know, it's funny because we we released that remake of Twenty-five or Six to Four and. It's, it was so bizarre because the guys in the band were turning 40 years old when I joined in 1985. 86. And you
0: were just a little, you were a little pisher. You were in your 20s, right?
1: 23 years old. Oh my God. But by the time that came out, I was 24, but all the program directors were the were the band's age, right? They were they were like 40 years old. Right. And they came up with that. They, it was almost like a boycott because I'd heard that the phones were really good you know on the new song but they were not happy about it at all so they did not push it so we said all right let's come with this with let's come with the ballad will you still love me and and obviously got it out in time and it went to number three so wow 25 or 64 was the first single but it really didn't chart well but will you still love me went almost to number one
0: Geez. All right. So before we get to how you got to Chicago. So, all right, you're a six-year-old kid. Yep. You're, you're, you're seeing your father with the fifth dimension. And by the way, that somebody came through with the, the the other names of the people in the fifth dimension. Now, if I could only find the screen and I can tell you who they are, but I can't Florence, find it right now.
1: Huh? Florence Florence was one of the females. Um, yes. I remember okay, uh, Marilyn, of course.
0: Oh, God. Now I hang on. There. Okay. Fl- yes. Florence LaRue. LaRue. Lamont M- Mclemore.
1: Mclemore, that's right. Mclemore, Mac- Lam- okay. Lamont there you go. Mclemore, that's right. Mac- okay. Yeah, tall guy, handsome guy, right. And they, um, okay. So let me finish that story real quick. Yeah. So we finished, we finished the, um, they finished the show, and I'm just like, yeah, blown away that I oh see my God. another stars. And my grandmother was was going to pick me up that night, and she was late. <laughs> which she never really was. And the next thing I know, my dad was like, hey, man, just you can just fly back up to LA with us and I'll just make sure you get home. So I'm in a taxi and Florence was sitting right next to me and she just had the most beautiful energy and smiling. Yeah, come with us, come with us. And, and I was a little scared because I'd never been on a plane before. And um, next thing I know, I see my grandmother, you know, like, frantically looking in every taxi and then finally finding me and rescuing me to get out because she she never flew that's a generation she never flew i was terrified of of airplanes so so i I, i'll never forget that there i was almost going to fly up with them and then this the first year um yeah so will you still love me was released in 19 at the end of 86 and so it was a hit in 87 so in '87 we did solid gold, and Marilyn McCoo was the host.
0: Oh! It was the
1: coolest thing to walk up to her and say, "I've got a little story for you," and she was just blown away.
0: Wow, that's so all right. That's so cool. All right, so you're so you're a little kid. Yeah. You're you're in awe. You're seeing what's going on with your dad. You're obviously not paying, playing bass yet. You're playing piano. No. Mm-hmm. You're not reading music. You're just kind of um playing, playing by, by ear yeah but you did learn to read music i assume
1: you want to know something i'm working on it now you know that's so
0: interesting stuff doesn't read music so many so many incredible musicians don't read music well that's interesting
1: i know well because if you have if you have a gift in the other direction it made music a lot easier how than, so and because it was natural Mm. I was always able to pick stuff up real fast right that's mm. from my father I've seen him do it and but your
0: father obviously was a gifted reader because he, he is was session musician so you know that's right.
1: that's the thing and that's the one thing I tell my kids or, or anybody up and coming I say here's the deal mm-hmm. especially if you're gifted mm-hmm. it's easy to take your foot off the gas pedal but if, if you and especially if you're like in a small percentage of whether it's a successful musician or somebody that's got so much of a gift that that you don't have to work as hard as the next person at it. Right. If you apply just a tiny bit more discipline, then you really separate yourself from the pack. Mm-hmm. Right. My mm-hmm. kids are actually listening to me on that.
0: You know, they could take a, a lesson, too, from your friend, Mr. Ferroni because when yes. we went to see Summerfest uh, just last week, He was on the charts the whole show because the click wasn't working, right? Something was going on.
1: Yeah, at the beginning. Yeah. Which funny enough, he's played all this stuff enough times, but part of what happens is that I've got a a track that cues, you know, what what sections coming up, right? Because the band with Generation Radio, which we'll get to that I have with J. Yes, we will. Rascal Flats. We play so infrequently that I put a system together so that, because I mean, listen, that's such a whole other conversation and debatable that we don't need to play to clicks and cues at all. But if you don't really get together that often, you're going to like spend three or four days in rehearsal to kind of, no, you're not going to be able to, you not. you're not going to be able to take the, the, uh, the, the offers because, you know. You're going to be sitting and nobody's got the time to do it so i put those together really as kind of training wheels so when the training wheels came off or i was actually excited i was really excited when i realized we're gonna to have to punt and <laughs> and, I, and and it's funny because steve and the conductor looked at me like you know they were looking looking to me for leadership they were like going looking at me to see if i was going to be panicking and i was starting to get excited as i wrote them the next day i said that was one of the most fun times i've had in such a long time because when we had the punt i was grinning like a cheshire cat deep down inside because i knew how great it was going to be because of who i have on stage with me
0: and it was it right was it's fantastic like,
1: it's like you know you you bring somebody like snuffy wald and you bring anybody into the mix it's just on that level you're not going to worry right so So it was, it was fun to watch, you know, Ferroni and he he laughed and he's saying, you know, you made me work tonight. I had to read because normally, but
0: right. I've never seen him read before.
1: Oh, he's, he's just the best. That guy I've played with. I've been fortunate to play with the greatest drummers in the world, Danny Serafin, Mm -hmm. Chris and Bowden for many years. And I just love the fact that At this point in my life, I get, I get a steady diet of Steve Ferroni. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Oh, yes. He's quite, he's quite something quite the charm. We went out to dinner the other night with uh, him and Julian. He's quite the, he's quite the storyteller too. He needs a microphone in front.
1: (laughs) So is my dad, you know, we, we did a symphony date in uh, Fort Worth. uh, The earlier this month. And Ferroni was on it, and it was so neat for me to watch somebody like Steve Ferroni that everybody's always just fawning over, right, and just mm-hmm. flipping out over. And and I got to watch him kind of doing that with my father. And Aww. my dad was just really praising him. And, and and my dad, those types of personalities, they want to tell stories. So I love it. It's like, it's my show, right? It's my name, you know, on the ticket and the marquee and everything. But I'm going, no, that's their show. As far as like, you know, s- sitting around backstage and everything, I'm like, just take it away, dad. And he did. They were just. Oh,
0: th- wow. That's so great. Okay. So now let's go back to Jason. So, okay. so where, so I think I asked you, so uh, were, are you, were you, are you influenced by your dad's playing? Are you completely your own thing?
1: I, since I think they split up when I was about three mm-hmm. and so I w- was not really around him. I didn't go seeking out what he was playing on
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um by the time he was with Elvis Presley I was eight seven eight years old so I wasn't even playing yet by the time I started playing I went funny enough I went from Elton John's my biggest musical influence period so I'd have to say D. Murray his bass player the original bass player was uh Mm -hmm. was and probably is if not the most influential bass player on me, which ironically is very Paul McCartney-ish. We'll get to mm-hmm. that with mm-hmm. Joey Mullen and all that stuff you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. But D. Murray, very spirited, lyrical. That's very Paul McCartney. I didn't realize that because I was not coming up on the Beatles. I was coming up on Elton John. And then I went through a kiss phase, which is funny because they're my, wow, friends, right? They're all my buddies. And, and, um, And I just got caught up in how the fun thing about that. But I segued real fast from that to one holiday season. And I bought a bunch of albums. I had spread on the floor. Vishnu Orchestra, which ironically I just met. Nardo Michael Walden, who was the drummer on the one album that I had.
0: I've been talking to him for for years trying to get him to do this show. And he finally sent me his email, but he hasn't given taken I'm a gonna,
1: yet. I'm going to reach out to him after we get because I just connected with him and we're we're talking about doing some collaboration.
0: How fantastic. Yeah, He's absolutely. amazing. He's
1: amazing. I know. Oh, I know. So so I was going off into fusion jazz, and so mahavishnu Orchestra I was okay. I was playing with my but
0: mom. Okay. So you picked up the, so you chose bass. I mean, I'm assuming you chose bass because of your dad.
1: It was no, it was because no. it was the last instrument left, but <laughs> it, it didn't hurt that, that my dad, you know, it, it made me feel connected uh, to him when frankly, we didn't have a lot of contact, you know, it mm. was, he was busy. He was off working. He was in LA. So it wasn't like, you know, weekends with dad or anything. So he was Did he
0: encourage of- you.
1: Or discourage a, you didn't never discourage me and and mm-hmm. and thankfully and I and I know why because because he, he he saw what I had and believed in me you know and mm-hmm. so he was always encouraged just like I am with my kids I would never tell them not to do they're 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 incredibly talented so it's like like Paul Stanley says when somebody says would you would you discourage your kid to play music he goes why would I do that it worked for me
0: <laughs> you know it's like you'd
1: be a hypocrite don't do that it's like well' to you know, so take your Take your, your, take your, your shot, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but at any rate, my mom, I had a band. She's a singer. That's how my dad and, and her connected. She, um, she had a band playing top 40 down in uh, like light top 40 in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And I joined the band when I was 14. I had a bass for about six months, but it was, it was just natural. So I joined her band. I joined the musician junior I was 14. Wow. And and it was making me f- start feeling connected to my father. I'd be playing, of course, overplaying. I still do. <laughs> from that place, jazz fusion. Just a lot of playing. I have to always. That's what's great about playing with Peroni is it teaches you relax, man. <laughs> relax. <laughs> and and so, so I was in her band, and a couple of the guys in the band were way off into this new fusion um, uh, movement. Chick Corea's Return to Forever Mahavishna Orchestra, Billy Cobham so we'd be playing these gigs around San Diego on the military bases and I'd hear these guys cranking this stuff on the way up And the, so I went, like I said, from KISS to Mahavishna Orchestra Romantic Warrior um, Chick Corea or Return to Forever um, Weather Report Average White Band so here I am Oh yeah, Harry so For I discovered Steve Ferroni back in, <laughs> whatever it was, 73, 74-ish, whatever. Wow. And that was the beginning of it. I Earth, Wind & Fire. So I'm a funk R&B freak. Mm-hmm. That's why my, that's my, that's my, Snuffy. When I met, I, I'd met him a couple of times, but I was auditioning for Shaka Khan and it was looking really good. They were really liking me. And I'll never forget him walking in the door and coming up to me and said, man, you're killing it. That's great. They went with somebody else, but um, it was a great experience and
0: wow. So you have known him a long time.
1: Yeah, yep. Wow. Yep, I really have.
0: And I saw you on stage with Rodeem, so you've gotten to oh
1: yeah.
0: did you know Allie Willis? I
1: I'd, I'd met her a few times, yeah.
0: She was a good friend. Oh out.
1: really? Yeah. Sorry, to, the yeah. loss. Well, so
0: yeah. so Okay. So you, you were doing all the funky stuff. You were, uh, okay. So take us through. So, so you're, so you're, you're making money as a musician, you're, you're playing and what's your trajectory? How, how how are you getting, where you are going?
1: So what happened was I joined my mom's band and and I was a pro and I felt,
0: and you're a kid and you're not even old enough to be in the clubs that you're. Yeah.
1: But I totally felt comfortable. I knew that's where I was supposed to be. All the older guys, you know, that I was working with were always just super encouraging. Are you so going was, to school? Yeah, I was, I was in, I was still in school. Um, <laughs> so I was really kind of becoming known as this young, you know, bass player guy. Are you um, singing? Nope. I mean, Not- I'm doing a little, my mom kept hammering on me saying you got to sing but I've, I'm a tenor, so I've always had a high voice. I wanted to sound like a dude and and be you know <laughs> tough sounding, so I'd try and. Boy, sing. did that work out well for you, Jason? Though. So I, so I'd always when if I'd try and sing what I wanted to sound like, it, there was no support, so I didn't think I had a voice, and my mom just kept hammering on me, so, I was in her band. Then I, when I turned 15, you know that wasn't cool anymore, so I, I left and and I was in some rock bands that were really fun one called coco blue that was a really great band down in san diego um, and our we used to we used to play parties and the guys that would be in the other bands that we would be playing were bands like uh, a group called mickey rat that turned into rat you know those guys wow. so we running with all those guys down in san diego and um and then i i got a so this whole other fusion funk side of me, a guy named Sam Barris, great friend of mine in San Diego, called me one day and said, Jason, I'm going to put the tightest, his words were, I'm going to put the tightest funkiest rhythm section in San Diego together. Would you like to play in the band? And I said, absolutely. And he says, well, we got a gig. We're going to Seattle. and w- Which meant <laughs> I'm in school and I'm, oh Yeah it was in my 11th grade year and I had missed so much school the year before because I was playing so much music and ditching school that I had 10th and 11th grade history, 10th and 11th grade. Oh Jesus. I was so far behind that I said, I'm taking the gig. (laughs) And my mother had moved up to LA. So I was living with my grandmother at the time. And I told her I'm taking this gig. And she says, no, you're not. And I said, yes, I am. and. and I called my mom. Um, I think she might have slightly tried to be resistant. I'm saying, you're in LA. What are you, talking about? how are you living with you? Called my father and I said, hey dad, I got a gig and um, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna quit school. And he said, absolutely. He said, I did the same thing. He goes, I did the same thing and then went back and got my diploma and it's never meant anything to me. I've heard you, I've heard what you do. So go for it so that that's that vicky wow. was basically giving me the, you know the encouragement and the green light
0: wow so i took
1: the gig went up to this great little club with the barris brothers was our band and we had the best holiday like about a month up there and then came back new year's day we did you know new year's eve and then the, the, I, the, the best band in San Diego was called the People Movers, and and it was a band leader named John Oz and that my mother used to go and hang out with in the late 50s at a place called the Mexican Village in Coronado. John played a piano bar. My mom would go in and sing with him, so they'd remain friends, and my mom used to parade me around when I was 14 and 15 and have me sit in with her friends, you know, and they'd be like, oh, c- come on, Lynn, and then I'd play. And they'd go, hey, all right. want to a little more, right? <laughs> So it was that thing. it was like really encouraging becoming like this little I hate to use the word phenom, but it, you know that's what it was this little monkey that she was carting <laughs> around the, the <laughs> grinder organ and and it was awesome. It was so encouraging. It showed me that i could I could do it, you know, I was not struggling with because the songs weren't that hard too, right And so I went in and sat in with John Ausen when I was fifteen, and his bass player was nathan east check this out so nathan 1978 he's going to ucsd studying bass and playing in john band. and all of a sudden nathan started going to, to la to become nathan east and um he was doing barry white sessions during the day and driving back to san diego at night to make his gig driving back to la to to resume his sessions the next day i remember going to nathan's going away party in 1978 and he was really sweet to me i think maybe i'd sat in Mm -hmm. you know he was just the nicest guy and still is he and ferroni play an awful lot together Mm -hmm. and so i was at his going away party and just thinking man this is like the coolest thing I'm, i'm really hanging out with the elite in san diego so i go and do this this gig in seattle and i on the way back i'm gonna live with my mom in la you know because she's living there and we stop at her house and she goes keep going to san diego she goes john called me and the bass player he hired to replace nathan isn't working out the guy was like a real simple country as he said he was a country bass player boom 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 so (laughs) we're playing a lot of like pretty hip you know um challenging music you know john Olsen always picked great great songs to play funk bordering on fusion but a lot of top 40 but you know which was great disco at the time and mm. just challenging stuff so she said he told he, he wants to once you to come down there so i went down to san diego and he heard me play so he didn't need to, he said do you sing i said no and he goes and this is check this out vicky this is the turning point and Nathan and I always laugh about this when I talk to him. He said, "Well, you have to sing in this band because Nathan sang." I go, "Okay." I mean, I wanted a gig, right? So he said, "Well, what do you want to what do you want to try?" And I'm looking at his set list, and I love passing this on to to up and comers too. I did something and didn't realize what I was doing, but it was really beneficial, and I've it's been me for the rest of my life. I didn't know to be safe yeah i didn't i didn't didn't, well first of all i'm thinking this isn't even serious or real anyway anyway i'm not i'm gonna try and get through something so i can get this gig but it's certainly not to become a singer right so he goes what do you want to try and i'm looking at his set list and i go
0: so it was not your aspiration you were very content to be a bass player that was your thing because it was
1: easy Mm -hmm. i didn't have to i didn't have to work at it to play those types of gigs right came very naturally like i said Mm -hmm. so the singing thing wasn't Another thing I try and tell kids and up and comers, don't just rely on what comes naturally and easy to you. Mm-hmm. Put a little effort in and you're going to, you're going to, you know, separate yourself from the herd. Mm-hmm. And, and I've got my mom, you know, echo, you know, sing, 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 I'm going, no, no, no. So he says, you know, what do you want to try? And I'm looking at the set list. And like I said, I didn't know to be careful because I picked probably one of the hardest songs you get. I said, well, how about just the way you are? Don't go changing and try and please me. You never let me down before. I mean, the rangiest, right? I know I didn't blow his mind by anything great, but he spotted potential. So he he made me sweat it out. Nathan told me he did the same thing to him. I'll call you tomorrow. And then offered me the gig. And I went in and the singer was a, a, a woman named Moki Graham. Phenomenal. A superstar in san diego mm. just a great singer so there was my first experience of walking up into an icon basically an iconic situation with a legend and i'm super outclassed but she was really sweet and 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 nurturing right mm-hmm. so and then i'd get questions people would come in and, and go, how, you're
0: still really young how old 16? are you
1: I'm 16.
0: Oh my God.
1: Right? <laughs> yeah. and I'm getting people coming in saying, Nathan East, man, those are big shoes to fill. How does that feel? And I'm like, well, I mean, I know I can't compete with them, but I mean, I'm, I didn't, didn't know this at the time to tell him, but I'm young and stupid enough to figure <laughs> why not try. Right. And, uh, but ask those questions, right. Nathan East, those are big shoes to fill. How do you feel about that? So by the time, and we'll get to how it all happened, but by the time I joined Chicago and I'm in I'm doing press, they were asking me, Peter Sotera, those are big shoes to fill. How's that feeling? I said, Well, it's it's pretty intense, but I've been kind of groomed by this because Nathan East I had to replace him and they asked the same question. So I guess that's my lot in life to follow these, these icons. So anyway, that was the beginning of the singing. And so I was in top 40 bands and I'd sing a song. So or wait, t-
0: did you, did you then start, did you study after that? Did you start to I, sing every day? what, tell,
1: what no, did you Well, I was just doing whatever I needed to do to get by. <laughs> um, I mean, I wasn't taking it seriously. I knew I had high notes, but again, I wasn't really able to sing the songs I'd really want to sing as a, as a male vocalist. And, and uh, so. I remember John found a, a vocal coach for me. Howard Freed was his name. And he, I took a lesson or two, mm-hmm. but really didn't apply it. But I just went there because John says, you should, you, we need to get your vocal lessons. And I remember he'd go, say, no, no, no. <laughs> right. And so I don't remember much else other than that. So mm-hmm. I'm just kind of going about doing the best I can. My mother is constantly pounding on me. You got to sing. You got to sing more. My friend Aaron Zygman that I grew up in San Diego with got a publishing deal with Almo Irving Records. He had just he moved to L.A. right around when I did. I think he was 19. He's going to UCLA and was not going to school for music. Um but he loved music, and he was really developing, working. He was one of the hardest workers I'd ever, I'd ever seen, and he, uh, he got this deal with Almo Irving, who started connecting him with everybody: um, Steve Cropper, Alan Gorey of the Average White Band, um, Jeffrey Osborne, Bobby Caldwell. So Aaron was bringing me into all these situations. We started co-writing with all these people. And I really hit my stride with Bobby Caldwell. And we started singing together. So I'm in the studio. And David Lastly, who I don't know if you know, he was James Taylor's, uh, one of his main background singers, the guy with the long blonde string. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounded like a Motown female. He was phenomenal. He just passed this last year or this year. And it's... Really sad. But David brought me into his world because he was an Almo artist or, or publish, published published um, writer, but also an artist. He made a record. Don was produced it before Don was Don was. And he <laughs> was, not, was not was, but he hadn't really broken out as a producer yet. And we had a great time making that record. And I was singing background vocals with Marcy Levy, Charlotte Crossley, Arnold McCullough, David Lasley and really hearing, and I've talked to all these people over the years, Bill Champlin, the same thing. When you sing next to people like that, and Bobby Caldwell, and you can hear, basically, it's a love, because they are wrapping their voice around you, and you are to them, which becomes that thing. Mm. So it's not about being a lead vocalist, or an artist, or anything. It is literally a joining of a sound as a background vocalist and bill champlin's won grammys Mm -hmm. as mvp background vocalist and arranger yet he's one of the most incredible lead vocalists and has sung Mm -hmm. some of the biggest hits in the world too um that was where i started really hearing what i could do vocally live Mm -hmm. still not i always struggle if i can't hear to this day if it's really hard for me to hear man i'm all over the place you know it's just it's it's got to sound great and it doesn't all the time i've gotten a lot better at it you know but it's it's never something that i felt as comfortable putting a bass in my hand and walking in and just really having ice water run through my veins but i started developing that way and i started singing my demos with Aaron, and we started getting noticed and people were carol childs of geffen gave us some money to go in the studio to try and get us signed and we kind of pissed it away we weren't quite ready and well you're still a kid yes indeed and doing yeah. kid things and <laughs> with, with the money it wasn't okay thing, but enough money to get into trouble too and and waste the opportunity but it wasn't supposed to happen then so i end up going on my own and i'm writing songs with dennis mccoskey who wrote maniac and a lot of ended up having a lot of success in nashville and country <clears throat> um me and bobby and dennis really hit our stride bobby and i started i started you probably know tony bronagle i do know tony okay so check this out Mm -hmm. then just tell me if i'm talking too much say shut up no 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 that's what
0: we're here for we're here to talk
1: so tony and sing well okay Okay. so tony and all these people snuffy tony um terry Wilson, wilson Yeah, and and Teresa, we're all in this world, and there's there's Willie Ornellis who's in a duplex that Tony's living in, in one of the units. Tony's playing with Bonnie Raitt, and he says, I'm going on the road. You want to come and house sit for me? I said, sure. So I'm in Tony's house and I just met Caldwell. And you know, he knew me as a bass player. And um, I think we maybe he had co-written something with Aaron, but I didn't, I was so intimidated. I didn't really do much. And I was at Tony's house and I was thinking, I got to get Bobby's attention. Let me let me try and come up with something. Let me try and write something that would get his attention. So I sat down at Tony's upright piano and he still got it. I always tell him, if you ever want to sell that thing, I want to buy it, man. He'll never sell it. And um, so I sat down and I came up with these changes and a melody. That I really liked. And I thought I thought, what would Bobby sing? Let's see.
0: Jason, see. make sure we can hear your bass. They were saying, I noticed on the, the the notes, people were saying they couldn't hear your bass.
1: It's gonna probably be hard because it's acoustic. So
0: yeah, we're not hearing the bass, but that's all right. We're hearing so, you.
1: Well then I'll let's see. So uh mm. Uh so someday I may find to love that will last forever and ever till then I'll spend a lifetime wishing us together. So that is a song that I started, took to Bobby. And, and I, we sat down, he was living at the Holiday Inn in Burbank right off the five freeway. He had just mm-hmm. come back to LA um, having gone home to Miami after his big hit, what you won't do for love. And a couple of records, that didn't happen. He went back to Miami to regroup and it was back in LA for a second run that ended up being great for him. And I was part of that beginning of when we were all sitting around writing and in the studio And I was learning how to sing next to him, hearing his phrasing and just, you know, going off of that and his tone. And so we were sitting, sitting, watching TV. And I, I said, man, I I started this idea. You probably don't want to hear anything right now because we're relaxing. But what I love about us, our breed is the muse always wins. (laughs) We turn the TV off immediately. I said, let's hear it. So I barely squeaked out that melody i just sang to you he flipped out and said what is that <laughs> pushed me off the bench and proceeded to go right into the key change and played basically the chorus lyrics and all of a song that ended up called heart of mine Wow. and we knew we had a racehorse but we were so i was so stupid back then that couldn't finish it that thing sat around for another year and a half. Dennis got involved, wrote the great transition chords into the um, chorus. And we, I went in, I went in to talk to Ronnie Vance, great publisher, Kathleen Carey and Ronnie Vance. It was Kathleen's company and Ronnie was working with her um, called Unicity. And I was over at Dennis McCoskey's, she in, uh, and ronnie called and said what are you doing dennis and he goes i'm writing with i'm working with jason chef and ronnie had heard of me and he goes put him on the phone so i said he goes what are you doing i said we're just writing so i got my first covers i got a song on david lastly's record and carly simon cut or you know our song and and he goes he goes uh he goes well who's got the publishing and i said well henry um bobby's Manager's going to take care of it. And he goes, come on and take a meeting with me. So I went in and he said, Um, he goes, so tell me what's happening. I told him, and he said, he goes, Jason, stop giving your songs away. He goes, here's the way it works. If you have something in the pipeline, I can go into Kathleen and tell her, like we got this kid and there's something coming, so we can offer she can offer you a deal. So he goes, Why do you want a publishing deal? And I said, I want a publishing deal so I can go in the studio anytime I want without having to rely on my friends. Because back then, in 85, the gear wasn't there yet. If you wanted to record, you had to go into a studio. And it was expensive. Right, of course. Right? A year later, two years later, all the little four-track cassettes were really getting popular. But in order to record for real, on, know, tape and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... He says, what? I said, I want to go in and be able to basically not answer to anybody. He looked at me and goes, you want to go in and record? He goes, tell you what, I'll give you a couple days at MCA Whitney. No strings attached. I won't even take the publishing. You go record. And I said, great. And so I walked out of there, not realizing that he's testing me. Right? <laughs> um i was just thinking well, he's just being a nice guy so of course i wasn't taking it seriously and i was smoking way too much dope back then mm-hmm. you know so let's just cut to the chase because i think we're gonna we're gonna get into that in a second here because we, we are talking about that but me and bobby smoked tons of weed now a
0: drug of choice by the way
1: me too okay if I was able to still handle it I'd be doing it but me too and it really
0: pisses me off that I never got to go into a pot store and I didn't get to have edibles and it really pisses me
1: off I know it's (laughs) and we'll get into this in a while because I'm glad I'm I'm so glad it's legal I am so glad that it's legal
0: I never would have left my house Jason I never would
1: well me either I'm just glad it's legal now so that people you're going to you're going to find out if you have a problem or not anyway but to remove the whole neuroses of i'm doing something wrong hey you know a lot of people's lives were really hope. yeah but
0: it's so strong
1: now i, mean, I know like, it is well we'll get oh, into let's get into that okay. in a second but for me and for anybody who may be leaving this podcast soon i'll just state i'm 36 years old i'm 36 years clean and sober so believe me
0: 21 for me
1: I love it it's been a long time since I've done any of that stuff I really don't have any desire to because I know where it leads for me we'll get into that but I'm just glad that that it's 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 not a criminal thing anymore yeah absolutely anyway so I
0: still get nervous every time I see a cop car in the in, in the Oh, room. I do too. I still think okay, do I have any pot in the car? I, I still think that.
1: What's the ashtray look like? I know. <laughs> I know. So so yeah, that so when I went over to Bobby with heart of mine, that's what we we smoked the biggest joint <laughs> that I brought cuz that was my entrance in, you know. I was, I was the weed <laughs> guy. I, brought, I got it. I, I won his heart by that. And so we were really really stoned and the tv was on that's when i just barely squeaked i have this idea that i started you you probably don't want to hear it you know (laughs) and it was just this magical moment that Mm -hmm. that he and i shifted gears in our relationship and became um collaborators on a deep deep level so um so i go so i'm sitting there with this opportunity to go in and and Record a couple days at MCA Whitney. And it's so funny how impressionable you can be. I was talking to a friend and I, I wasn't I wasn't preparing, nothing, you know, N- nothing at all. I was not preparing, just doing what I was normally doing, just goofing around. That's the pot. I'm was, gonna say well, that's the pot. I totally agree because I was every day <laughs> from the minute I woke up. So of course yeah. I'm focused or, or disciplined. And I was talking to a friend saying, yeah, I'm going to go into um, Ronnie Vance gave me a couple days of studio time in MCA Whitney. So I'm going to go in and, and record. And I remember them saying, oh yeah, that old gospel studio. And in my mind, I thought that old gospel studio, meaning it's probably not really great. And I remember MCA had a little demo studio down in the bottom of the, of the record label. And so I, I wasn't thinking that it was going to be, you know, much the night before i went in to the studio aaron loaned me his dx7 and he had this little drum machine that was not great and i programmed do ( spacing) that do that do that just that and i fire up the keyboard and i'm trying to write something And whether it was good or not, it might have been, you know, there might have been something that was okay about it, but my brain was just, this sucks. You got Mm. nothing. So I just turned it off, drove to the studio the next day thinking, I'm just going to walk into some kind of rundown. And I walk in and it's Neve Studer. So for anybody who knows what that is, Neve is the 70s iconic console. Like if you've seen Sound City, the movie, that was the console, the first one that came to LA, that that um, that Keith Olsen had put in Sound City, did the Buckingham Nicks album on first, which I had my father playing bass on. Wow! And that Neve console is a standard rock mm-hmm. phenomenal console, and Studer tape machine, the standard at the time, right? That got my attention. I went, whoa, this is real. better come up with something so i Mm -hmm. i said what do i have what not that piece of shit i was trying to work on last night i don't even remember it anyway i said heart of mine let me let me let me so i cut it i cut this little crude version and um we only had one verse written so i second verse same as the (laughs) first right i recorded it and i didn't know exactly i didn't know what the protocol was so i called bobby Mm -hmm. and i said I hope you're not mad at me, but I I went in and I cut "Heart of Mine" today, and he said, "Really? You like it?" And I said, "Well, yeah, yeah." And he goes, "Come over here." I played it for him, and he went, "This is incredible. Wow. We're gonna finish the lyric tonight, and we're gonna go in tomorrow, and I'm gonna produce your vocal, and we're gonna do background vocals together." And I said, "Awesome." So we get on the phone with Dennis McCoskey, we finish the lyric. I go in the next day, I cut it, I take a meeting with Kathleen and Ronnie, and Kathleen was magical, still is. She's like one of the greatest publishers and people in the world, and she was running this company, and Ronnie he introduces me, and Ronnie asks me, so did you get anything? Kind of was like, a, I know you didn't, you know, and I said, yeah, and he's like, really? He goes, do you like it? And I said, yeah, I wasn't like, Yeah. why do you hear this? I said, yeah. And he goes, gimme, 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 gimme. He puts a tape in the tape player. And it was that moment. And I love talking to people when this has happened for them to find out when the moment was for them. And they, they played hard of mine, my demo. And I watched Kathleen close her eyes and take music in more deeply than I'd ever seen a human being listening to music and ronnie was just sitting there you know listening and she had this smile on her face and by the end of the song she opened her eyes and looked over at ronnie and said we've got to sign him right now and ronnie goes what really i mean don't you want to go on your vacation she was going to go on vacation goes, no 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 jason get a lawyer we're signing him right now and she signed me and one of the main reasons I wanted a publishing deal is I wanted somebody to talk about me like they were doing with Aaron. You know, they were, Aaron, they were getting Aaron, which meant Aaron and me to everybody. So sure enough, three months later, this is 1985, September. The Night Stalker was out. I remember <laughs> Richard Ramirez. It was September of, of 85 and LA was panicking because the Night Stalker was still right. at large. Never forget that it was super hot. Remember that's why people were leaving their windows open.
0: I was in New York, so it's a whole different reality.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that was going on, and so I was writing. I thought some... you
0: were talking about a television show when you first. oh no. no the Night Stalker. Okay. Oh, I, this was the real. This was a Richard real Mary. Night Stalker. Yeah. Okay.
1: In L.A., right when the, all this was happening, and so three months later, I get a phone call from Kathleen saying something's going on i don't know what it is but i've been in this business a long time and i can feel it something's going on get ready i go for what and she goes and she says i don't know but something's happening she said michael austin called me yesterday warner brothers and says do you have any songs for Peter Cetera's solo album, and/or someone to write with him? Because Cetera had left Chicago earlier that year, and ironically, I was playing with Carmen Grillo, who I don't know if you know, but and he's all part. He's kind of part of that whole circle. He was another one of the background vocalists on the David Lastly sessions. Bill Champlin was hanging out. He was in Chicago already, right? Because they had, they had made chicago 16 and 17 chicago had made this massive comeback they're all over the radio and bill champlin i remember him walking into rehearsal for carmen one day because we were playing at my place at snuffy and all these guys used to play michael mm-hmm. Ruff, bobby called well all of us and and uh and uh champlin walks in i'll never forget and he says so tara just left the band right and I'm just shocked because I loved what I was hearing, the David Foster era. And Tamara, Bill's wife, came up to me because she heard my voice on a on a movie session a week earlier. She came in after me and I'd done some vocals. So she heard me. She walked up to me and said, hey, Jason, you ought to get a tape to Bill. You never know. And I said, again, a kid who would never follow through because it's just too lofty. There's no way it's going to happen. I said, yeah, I should. You know, and <laughs> never, never did and so that was early in the year and then all of a sudden so bill and i'd become friends and you know Mm -hmm. he just knew me as a bass player i'm not going to open my mouth in front of this guy he's a real singer so we um we uh we're just you know playing around a little bit here and there and and um so this thing is happening michael austin calls us do you have anybody for to to write either songs or someone to write with peter for his solo record because they had both when peter went solo warner brothers had both chicago and peter Cetera. now they're of course looking for someone to replace peter and the word on the street i remembered hearing it mr mr richard page was they were talking to him and so all kinds of you know stories went out that he was offered the gig they were paying him a fortune all this stuff was on the street And then, uh, you know, you hear now he who's
0: who's filling in. I mean, because Chicago does so many dates a year. Who's doing it in the interim?
1: They had a gap. They had a small gap because because they they never stopped touring. But I guess they never stopped touring. Yeah. 1985, 85. I guess that summer would have been. Yeah, that was they didn't tour that summer, but they toured early in the year. Mm -hmm. that's what peter had left earlier in the year so technically they 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 toured in 85 so they never missed a year but they just didn't do a summer tour so they weren't able to capitalize on the success of those records you know because they were just on fire right they're, they're trying to figure out you know they need to get in and start chicago 18 the next the next album they were talking to richard page he had a great record in the can with um with uh um broken wings and Kirier. So he's not gonna leave that. They're just ready to come out. They were talking to Mickey Thomas, who's become a great friend of mine. Same thing. He was sitting on a record with Sarah and We Built the City, he's not gonna leave. So they're talking to those guys. So they were getting to the point where they were just thinking, let's just get a singer. At first, Richard Page was interesting because he played bass, but they were starting to talk to just you know, just singers like Mike Mickey. So so my tape goes over to Warner Brothers.
0: So you 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 do get a tape. You don't get the tape out. They get it out for you.
1: Yes, Michael Austin called Kathleen and said, "Do you have anybody for Peter's solo album? Either songs or someone to write with him." She goes, "Yeah, we just." Oh, them.
0: that. Oh, the tape went there, not yeah. to Chicago. It goes no, there. Okay.
1: Yet. Okay. So she, she she said that um, you know he he called and asked, and she said, "Yeah, well, we just signed this new kid. Let me send you his stuff." sent the tape i was not trying to sound like chicago i was not you know just doing my thing i was trying to sound like bobby caldwell to tell you the (laughs) truth and and so she sends the tape gets a phone call the next day from michael's assistant and the, the assistant says who's singing on the demo and that's when she says the writer is jason and the assistant says thank you and hangs the phone up that's when Kathleen called me and said something's going on. I'm telling you, had no idea what was in the works, but she said, "Get ready because something's happening." I went, what is what? What? She goes, "I don't know, but just be prepared." What happened is that when Michael heard the tape, he said, "Wait a minute, man. This sounds like what we could, what we need for Chicago." Forget Peter's record. He calls Lenny warrenker upstairs, says, "Come down here. You got to hear this." And Lenny comes down and goes yeah the the tape goes to howard kaufman who was managing the band at the time um the band david foster all of warner brother michael mo austin and the entire staff a week later everybody's heard this tape and i get a phone call saying we think that you're the new lead vocalist of chicago and i'm going well maybe i should probably work on this marijuana cocaine problem that i have now i'll tell you what vicky and i love going back down memory lane and when people we talk about this the only reason i felt comfortable even continuing is i thought there's no way this is going to work so there was no i didn't really have and they were so supportive they made it so known we want you man you're our guy. You're the future of the franchise. They made no joke wow. about it. Wow. But, and as Howard Kaufman told me, because when I went in to meet him, he said, come in and meet me. So I guess he just wanted to make sure I didn't have three heads, you know, or that I was a, <laughs> a, a real asshole or something. Because he told me on the phone, he, when we first talked, he said, how old are you? I said, I'm 23. And he goes, uh-oh. Like, what? And he goes, can't you say you're older? Can't you, no, he goes, can't you say you're 30? And I said, I'll, <laughs> I'll say I'm 80. If that's a, choice. no, 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 don't worry about it. But they were worried about creating a monster. Right. Mm. And so I went in to meet him and it was really, really great. And he looked at me and said, it's between you and Mickey Thomas. And he saw probably my head, you know, go down. Um, and this is another thing I love to help up and comers with when I know that they've got the goods. He looked at me and says, Jason, and I looked up at him, he says, they want it to work with you. So he's basically saying it's your game to lose. Ooh. And that gets into I was just talking about this to some really heavy duty television guys at a golf tournament that we were at a mm-hmm. week ago. That moment when and I was I was still really not in good shape with drugs, right? You know I was handling it to, to pull the job off, but I was still using a mm-hmm. moment comes when you're in the batter's box and it's all on the line and you're either going to feel comfortable or not mm-hmm. and that's what it came down to it's like a, so i'm sitting there thinking this is probably gonna it's gonna catch up to me at some point i'll crash and burn at some point because i'm really not i'm not i'm outclassed here but every step of the way it was working so i went and auditioned and and um
0: what what did I, you do for your audition? Do you remember?
1: They had me do three songs. I know it was twenty-five or six to four, maybe you're the inspiration, and one other song. And we 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 blasted through them. It was at Danny Serafin's home studio, so I couldn't really hear that well. Mm-hmm. So I know I wasn't blowing their mind vocally, you know. I was showing that, you know, I was getting through it and competent, but there was no way that the system wasn't set up to really sound really amazing. Plus I was just not ready, you mm-hmm. know on a certain level and they um so you were 23 yeah but still this is an important thing for them so and they could they could have whoever they wanted so it was a pretty neat thing because um they we finished the first three songs and they
0: how much jason how much did you want it
1: i wanted it badly because i wanted it badly because they wanted me it was like this whole destiny thing was starting to unfold it wasn't like Mm -hmm. this was my favorite band in the world and I couldn't wait to be in it Mm -hmm. it was just and I got it why they wanted me my voice was uh, was a tone that was perfect to go into that thing right Mm -hmm. I was not quote-unquote trying to copy Peter Cetera but I'm a top 40 musician and I always love this conversation too that you know when people say oh At first, like, oh, he's a Peter Cetera clone. Well, first of all, there's never going to be a clone because he's the gold standard, just like my father. Never, the minute you're getting into that, you're cooked. But what I did do is I honored the music um, because I've heard it so much on the radio. It's just like the same thing when I started getting top 40 gigs as a kid. I heard it so much. I already knew how to play it without having played it yet because Mm -hmm. there were... Chicago is a bit more challenging than a lot of regular top 40, but still my ear could go to that. So actually the third, after the third song they were saying it was either Panko or lamb that said, wow, man, that's great. I wish we would have had you learn more material. And I said, well, what do you want to play? And they go, did you, did you learn anything? I said, no, but I've heard your stuff forever, man. They're going, you didn't work on anything. I said, no, but let's play something. They go, what do you want to play? And I said, How about just you and me, which was one of the first songs that I really got turned on Mm -hmm. by at the beginning for me in 1972 or whatever it was. I was 10 years old. And they go, did you learn it? And I said, no, but let's play it. And they saw what I do. You know, I played it and I even sang the sax solo and Walt was really getting a kick out of it. (laughs) because <laughs> i knew it so well right uh-huh. i think that i think that really helped that they saw they de- they saw a fearlessness they saw a musical ability as well as they were hearing you know and it's funny because after i did that i can't remember which one of them said okay i'm sold and i'm like going oh shit. is this happening and then danny to his credit danny it, he and he was right he said, "Guys." this is a big decision, man. I mean, he's obviously nervous. Maybe should we like, you know, have another rehearsal in a, in a real production facility? with a, And I got no problem with any of that. And Panko said, man, this is so sweet. This just showed how much they believed in me. Panko said, well, I've heard his recordings, which to me now as a, as a band member and a band leader, that doesn't mean anything. If somebody can't pull it off live. Right. Really hadn't proven that yet and like i told you that was always an area especially then when i'm not even really looking at myself as somebody on that level that i didn't know if i was really able to and i'm standing next to bill champlin and robert lamb iconic voices and replacing peter satara who's (laughs) the balls to do that especially when you're this snot-nosed kid who's just you know got a drug problem but they're they're continuing to move forward and so i'm going well i'm not going to torpedo it and i'm just going to keep going until i till i crash and burn Mm -hmm. really expecting that to happen to tell you the truth Mm -hmm. so then all of a sudden they go and and danny said guys this is this is a big decision for us and they go "It was the best they go hey man i hate to ask you this but can you step out into the driveway while we talk (laughs) so i'm standing (laughs) out there actually chris Pinnock, who was playing guitar for them who had just left? He went out into the driveway with me, and I remember looking at him, trying to get like some kind of a, a read, and he wasn't giving me anything. <laughs> and I walked back in. And they said, "Hey, listen, you did really well. We have to honor Mickey Thomas an audition. We don't really think he wants to, but we at least have to honor that if he does to come and audition." I said, "No problem." They said, "So we'll call you, and we'll either, you know." figure this out or maybe do another audition in a in a big production facility and I said great so I left with a with a a comfort of them saying you did real well and knew that they they wanted it it, What, what
0: was your gut Jason
1: my gut well that's a great question my gut was um my gut was this the truth the, my gut was that they were that that they were going to talk to mickey mm-hmm. mickey was going to be their lead singer and i was just going just let me maybe, let me be the bass player that would be real comfortable for me you know um i did not think it was unimaginable that they would be calling me and saying you're our you're our lead vocalist now i mean it's just unfathomable really? yeah definitely and 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 then uh we went in and did another. Was audition. it
0: dis- was it disappointing for a moment when they said, okay, we're going to give. We're gonna no,
1: give. no, no, because I, I, because no. I didn't feel like I went in and kill. I felt I killed it as a bass player. Like I said, that was easy. Mm-hmm. I knew I had their attention as a bass player. Mm-hmm. They mentioned it. Wow, man. your bass playing is incredible. I said, thank you. My dad's Jerry Schiff. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so I was like the whole time, Vicky, I'm going, this is really not gonna happen. I mean, I'm gonna play this out as long as it as long as it goes, right? And so we came back into a big production facility, went and did the same thing. Of course, I was nervous, and I know that I'm not blowing their minds vocally, but it was it was adequate, it was serviceable, obviously. Um and Robert comes up to me at the end of the rehearsal or at the sound check and puts this cap on me that had a super long bill on it. And he said, congratulations. You're in the band. I'm going unbelievable. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing them going, Robert, Robert, Robert. He he looks over (laughs) and then uh, he goes over and talks to them and he walks back and takes the cap off. (laughs) And he says, hey man it's he goes it's it's looking really good he goes we just have to figure out how to do this okay Mm -hmm. we got to figure out how to do this so
0: how did that feel
1: i'll call you again i thought i'm in on some level okay but you still
0: you still felt more you felt more positive than not more yes. good than, than oh the, yeah no because yeah, yeah, he
1: yeah. put the cap on my head yeah yeah and he just said we got to figure this out so the next day I'm thinking
0: but no fear you had no fear maybe you had enough pot in you that you didn't have fear
1: well there's I wouldn't no I wouldn't say like was, no
0: fear that you would that it might not happen like what if this doesn't what if they don't figure it out
1: you not, knew you had enough confidence you I, I knew, you knew, I, I, that knew, I, knew I, I was in on some level yeah 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 So by the time the next day rolled around and I got a phone call from Robert and he said, "Uh, Jason, Robert Lamb, uh, give me a call. I have some good news. I'm going, holy shit. And I'm thinking, to to tell you the truth, Vicky, I'm thinking they hired Mickey Thomas. Fantastic. And I'm the bass player. Let me sing a song. Let me sing my one song I had on that I co-wrote on on chicago 18 nothing's going to stop us now i wrote with buzzy feet and um that would have been very comfortable for me Mm -hmm. at that point in my life um so i called him back left him a message he wasn't there he calls me back misses me leaves another message howard kaufman calls me and says uh hi Jason Howard and I said hi Howard he goes so did Robert get a hold of you and I said well he's left me some message we've missed each other but he says he has good news and there's this pause Vicky again so Kathleen listening to the songs the first one and then this one is like your life's changing man there's this big pause I said yeah he called me and says he's got good news and this pause and Howard Kaufman says Yep. So who do we talk to to make a deal?
0: Mm.
1: When I went, oh, my God, I'm in. So then I'll I'll not belabor this point too much. We started writing songs together. It was fantastic. Lamb. um, Lamb. Champlin. Panko a little bit. uh, Lee, I got together with once to try and write something. But Lamb and I were writing songs. So i'm writing songs with robert lamb right wow. one of the the genius writers of and he's mm-hmm. and he's into it he fought for me and I'll, I'll get to this in a second too but but um and and chaplin just embraced me right and we were at the microphone doing the background vocal thing and it was just suddenly i'm i'm part of this sound he's on the you know he's on oh, so many records george benson turn your love around the tubes Uh, she's a beauty champ and then all of a sudden i'm hearing my voice and i've heard these again i've heard this stuff so much it's in my dna that i can phrase with that right we've got the ear to 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 go to that right rather than hey you got to come to me man so (laughs) we're writing these songs we we're going to turn them into david foster and i'd met david he was he loved my father Mm -hmm. he was and i'd met him through a couple of good friends of mine tom and john keen Mm -hmm. he didn't know me as a singer of course and um and all of a sudden obviously David had gone along with it to say that you know he'd he'd heard the tape and uh, he didn't he didn't fight them but we were going to turn this demo tape in um that we did at Danny's studio and I remember at the very last second I was telling Lamb I said I should go in and rerecord a couple of these things because i had a pretty bad cold and it's it's not really great vocally and and he said something and i almost made a fatal mistake
0: ah what what, what?
1: and he said i don't worry about about the vocals it's just to show him the songs well this is the first thing david foster is going to hear of peter Sotero's replacement absolutely and it's not up to par So. They give the tape. And as the story goes, Bobby Caldwell, my best friend, who had a song called Niagara Falls that was unbelievable on the 18th album. It's the first song on the album. David hires him to come into the studio to do some background vocals. He wanted to get him on mic and heard his voice, and he cornered him and said, You gotta bail me out. They made a mistake. They got the wrong guy, man. Oh. You have to come in. And Caldwell says, Oh
0: my god, David,
1: he goes, David says, or and David says, Well, I'm not saying fire him. I'm just saying you got to come and sing the, the singles, which by the way, Vicky, I would have been fine with. I'm I'm not arguing with him. I'm going, I, I'd be panicking too. And Bobby goes, Man, this is real uncomfortable for me, David. He's my best friend. Wow. And David says, you just got to bail me out. Foster called Robert Lamb and said, You made a mistake.
0: Does Bobby tell you? Bobby doesn't tell you.
1: Yeah, how else would I find out? Yes,
0: he right away. He tells you right then while this is going on.
1: Wait, how did I find out? He didn't what tell I, you right then. He did. How did I find? It? How did you find out? Oh, no, no, no. He didn't tell me right away. What it was was yeah. He wouldn't um, tell you right. Lamb right, went right, to right. Lamb or Foster went to Lamb and said. Mm-hmm. He went to Lamb and said, "You made a mistake, man. You don't have the guy." and probably wow. said i want caldwell to come in and lamb said to him sorry you're working with him he's our guy
0: wow i'll take a bullet
1: for lamb and that band till the day i die wow Now, if i didn't pull it off vicky i, I got my shot no yeah uh, yes you you earned fine. you
0: earned your you earned your fine, seat but,
1: you, but he but wow I good mean, for him how many people would have done that this is this wow. is Chicago 18 and he's like going he believed in me that much they all did right so wow man I I um so I walked in on day I I'm telling you I think Caldwell told me pretty quickly
0: yeah you. so you were, knew
1: when you first I,
0: went into the studio with David Foster oh, you knew what yes
1: I knew that he was not happy. He, he liked me personally, but he was, and I'd heard, this is so great. And I, again, these are lessons I love to pass on to up and comers mm-hmm. that I had heard what an ogre this guy is with singers, real ones, Barbara Streisand, right? Real singers.
0: You're a real singer, by the way, just for the well, record. I
1: didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. Thank you. But, and he helped me discover that. That's what i'm about to tell you
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i'm sitting there going and again this helped me re- not relax but not freak out because i'm going this is just i'm going to crash and burn this is going to be the moment i was just happy i had a contract that said i was going to get paid for the year whether i <laughs> was able to perform or not i go
0: hey, play yeah <laughs> yeah and that
1: was that was as low as i was thinking i was not thinking big at all i'm going this is incredible i'm probably gonna crash and burn the guy knows that i'm not right so he's gonna chew me up and spit me up but I, i'm gonna get paid for the year it's incredible right so i walk in and and he's very nice of course mm-hmm. and it was the coolest thing he had this songwriting um workshop or something from canada down in his studio and they all walk in they're all young people and foster with this voice says guys this is the new lead singer of chicago and they're like you know mesmerized and i'm totally confused going he doesn't believe that and that's probably maybe not going to be the case by the end of the day but i'm like how am i supposed to like stand or react react to this but i just graciously said hi you know thinking this is it doesn't really sound right <laughs> cuz I, I don't think this is going to happen and he said to them he goes all right, you guys, we got to get some work done. So you got to get out of the studio because most of the singers that he works with or anybody does not want people around. Right. And so they file out and he left the door open or somebody left the door open to the studio. So they're out in the lounge. It was, you know, right outside the door. David looks at me. Luckily we did my song, my one song on the album. Nothing's going to stop us now. And so I knew it and vicky i had sung it six months before this is one of the songs i got my publishing deal with before heart of mine and it was the first time i was in the studio where i felt a real mastery of recording i could i i felt the technique all coming together and it was it was it was uh it was really Mm. well crafted so Mm -hmm. i said just if you can duplicate that jason because that's what they—that's what they bought you on. They signed you on. So, but that's the moment where you just—you may crash and burn, you know, emotionally, and not be able to breathe and whatever. And I was kind of thinking that was what was going to happen. So Foster's looking at me, and he says with a real feeble tone. And I thanked him for this. He got nervous when I first told him. I said, "This is the best thing you could have done for me, man." He presses the talk back, and he goes, "You want to try one?" <laughs> yeah sure right and vicky <laughs> i'm telling you humberto Pika, with just one grammy for record of the year and best recorded engineered album of the year chicago 17 that's the that's the engineer on the other side of the glass with david foster a modern day mozart starting vocals on chicago 18 the follow-up to 17 their biggest selling album to date with this new guy and the tape started rolling and i heard the most beautiful sound it sounded like a finished record and humberto had the vocal sound and the setting so beautiful inspiring that i literally went okay here we go and i took a deep breath she was lost uncertain only she could see he and i and i said i'm getting chills even talking about this I knew i was up and running and every i'm telling you when you hear that record a lot of that is the first take because i can hear my confidence growing throughout that song that's when it happened one by one everybody from that songwriting camp was coming back into the studio wow end of the song all of them their mouths were wide open And I want to hear
0: one thing. What did David Foster say? His
1: head was in his hands. (laughs) And we finished the song, and he just goes, You just blew my mind. But then you knew you would. (laughs) And we were up and running and motored through the record, had zero issues with him. And I was prepared because that's my wheelhouse, the recording studio. That's why it worked. That's why when Bill Champlin and I went to the mic, when he he started getting me on background vocal sessions because that's where I was comfortable. I was, and still am fast in the studio and, and a sound when it multiplies, when you double and triple the sound of the vocal and that was Foster and Cetera's secret, Mm -hmm. just the harmonics and the voice. So that was the day and it completely, I'm telling you, if you heard my recordings two or three months before Chicago 18 or saw me in a, in a nightclub, whole different singer. Wow, something completely was born and changed on that day, never to return. So it was like, and
0: so that prophecy that was made that something was happening and something was coming. Yep, Yep. yeah, you walked right into that.
1: And then, and sorry to just make this one long run on sentence, but you'll appreciate this. So, so I'm getting through that section, I'm still getting high. I put the cocaine down because I'm going, you're gonna really blow this pun intended. If you do that smoking. What year is this? 80, 86. Okay. 86. And and so the minute mm-hmm. I was done, minute I was done with um, the vocals on Chicago 18, started going back to partying. Because I thought my problem with cocaine was that I just didn't have a, a dime. And so the minute I started doing it, was so guilty that I was robbing Peter to pay Paul. wasn't paying rent, but now I was making a couple bucks. So that's so I'm I'm dabbling back into it, and since I you know was able to kind of, and I never really did you know like loop two three days together, but yeah, but it was I was not, I didn't have that stress that I didn't have my my rent paid. So I thought I was being able to handle it. Went on the road. Um, a few months later. And all of a sudden, um, two weeks into my first tour, and I'd sworn it off. I was in uh, in some barbecue joint in Memphis, Tennessee. And as I was leaving, and it was not a party hang. Two guys were there that were sober already. So we weren't even getting loaded. But man, they know how to find you. I was walking out. I was one of the last guys out the door and some seedy looking character says to me, hey man, you know anybody who wants to buy some schniz? I'm going, schniz? (laughs) And I go, well, I'm kind of getting low on my weed. I go, weed? He goes, no man, toot, snow or some antiquated term, right? And the thought crossed my mind, you're successful now. You got your bills paid. That was always the problem. You can handle this. Get some and then you'll just do a little bit with a couple of guys that still just kind of dabble a little bit. And as they say, as, as us addicts can, can really um, relate to the minute I decided I was already high. It was on and off to the races. So I told them where I was staying the Peabody hotel. And, um, and so I got back to the Peabody and we had two days off and there was one crew member that, uh, that always FedExed real <laughs> strong stuff in. So I'm in the lobby and I went up to him, and said, you got anything? And he goes, yeah. And I said, give me one. And I palmed him a hundred bucks, gave me a gram of cocaine. I went upstairs, the guy who, um, the guy who, who I met in the restaurant came over with his girlfriend, gave me a little tester, which was just marginally better than what he sold me, which was really not good. (laughs) And and so I said, okay, I'll take one. And then he he wanted to hang out with his girlfriend. I said, no, you got to split, man. So he split. And I said, no, I'm just going to get my motor running, you know, and just do a little bit of the good stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's all it took. And I was right there back in the bathroom by myself all night, just gone. Yeah, that's what and it was. in the morning and i realized none of this success or any of this stuff is is fixing this man i called champlin who was a year sober at the time and my friend and i said we were supposed to go to a guitar shop and i called him to just tell him first i said i can't go because i'm not not feeling well he goes okay then i called him later so i needed to talk to somebody i said reason i didn't go is because i've been up all night and he goes i'll be right down i'm going i'm not asking you to come over here (laughs) but but that's what we do right he shows up and he sees all the little miniature tanqueray bottles and all the mini bars cleaned out and he goes he kind of laughs and goes i remember this Mm -hmm. look and he goes so we sat down and he um and i said i know i got a problem man but i'm not going to stop smoking weed i said cocaine's my problem sure. I I know that if I drink, I'll, I drink too much. And then I want to come back the other way. So, so I'll throw alcohol in there, but I'm not stopping smoking weed. And he goes, yeah, I used to say the same thing, but for me, it all led down to the the same path. And so I'm like hearing a guy trying to close me, you know, and I just said, well, that's nice and everything, but you know, I'm not going to stop smoking weed. And then he asked me to you're
0: telling my story, Jason, right?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) We all have the same story. He, he asks me two of the best questions anybody could have asked he said let me tell you something man your career is like a pregnant woman something's about to happen because will you still love me had just been released and it was first couple of weeks it was released so mm-hmm. yeah had a, had a good first week mm-hmm. good second week but it's just released he goes so something's about to happen man he goes what are you going to do if this song's a hit? I mm-hmm. think I'm going to celebrate, man, because I'm the. I'm going to smoke some. Yeah, I'm <laughs> going to celebrate, and who knows, a little little cocaine, whatever you know. But I'm going to, in general, I'm going to celebrate. Mm-hmm. Then he asked the best question. He goes, "What are you going to do if it stiffs?" Because mm-hmm. I'm really still expecting that to happen. The shoe's going to drop, Vicky. So I'm an I'm an addict. You understand this. It's impending doom. There's no way this is going to work out good in that state, right? They're going to find out. You really shouldn't be here. You've gotten this far, but this is the moment that they're all going to find out that you're a fraud, man. Mm -hmm. So when he asked me that question, I go, What are you going to do if this stiffs? And I go, That's probably what's going to happen. I am going to hurt myself badly, sabotage, because Then everyone's going to know. And you will be the most embarrassed person. So I realized that's the part in our program that says taking a trip, not taking a trip. I realized there was no other option to get high or to get high. That is the question. Mm -hmm. I realized I was trapped and I said, okay, I'm taking, what do you, what do I do? And he goes, I'll set you off with my counselor. It was up at hazelden but they've just started a new one down in in west palm beach i said oh florida cocaine great that'll probably be a (laughs) little bit i realized that was the drug of real choice at the time that was bringing people into rehabs (laughs) so i did it and i got in the shower i got in the shower when i had 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 uh i had didn't realize i had surrendered yet but in the shower I was playing, and this is how cool all this stuff keeps coming around. And you saw him the other night. I put on Toto's Fahrenheit album, a song called Leah that Steve Porcaro wrote. That's one of the most beautiful pieces of music. Mm -hmm. And I felt so connected to it because Joseph Williams was singing it, who I actually called Jeff Porcaro to recommend for the gig. So I felt connected that I was the guy that, that made the recommendation. And so I'm hearing Joe's voice, Steve's beautiful music. And this shower was hitting me. And I'm not a s- super religious guy. Only t- This is like the second time that I actually remember, I guess you'd call it prayer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I can recall because I remember standing there saying, I don't know if I said, if there's anybody out there or God, if you're there, again, help me. And this water felt like a baptism. Mm-hmm. And the obsession was lifted wow forever
0: okay so on that that was
1: it you were that done? was it I wow. had a bag of weed Chaplin said because I had about three weeks before I was gonna we we're gonna finish the tour and go into rehab and he said don't try and quit now man they don't like that they like when you come in really hammered and pickled <laughs> so your defenses are down and I said okay but I'm telling you I was never drawn to that again because wow. I knew where it was going and something out there helped me right and it's funny because i didn't keep going without you go okay i guess i get that praying thing out of the way <laughs> until i <laughs> till I, until i got really more involved in programming this and that but that was that was that i went into the i went into rehab and they told me don't tell anybody the, the funny thing was they they put me in detox mm-hmm. the first night because it's standard and I said, I've been clean for three weeks. They said, it doesn't matter legally. But no. yeah, we have to put you in detox. I'm sitting in detox with this one other girl who needed to be there. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching TV and all of a sudden thick of the night comes on. And there's Bill Champlin guesting with the jacket wow. that I saw him wearing three days before. It was the most surreal thing. Wow. I'm going, that's my life. <laughs> I'm I'm part of that, but I'm in here kind of bottoming out, right? It's like this real beautiful yin and yang thing where when you you're becoming successful, something's keeping you from really losing your mind, right? This whole this whole uh, you know bottom with with drugs and alcohol. So I'm sitting in there and, and my counselor says, do not tell anybody what you do. You know they're going to treat you different. You need to be right sized. I said, I totally get that. Mm -hmm. so i'm sitting in my my room with my roommate and and all of a sudden i couldn't believe it will you still love me comes on the radio (laughs) first time i hear it because it's becoming a hit it's becoming a hit now it's becoming a hit and i'm flipping out and i say to my roommate i got to tell you something but you can't tell anybody (laughs)
0: He goes, oh, of course, he's not going to tell anybody.
1: Goes, no, but he goes, I don't want to know. And I go, Dude, seriously, I'm freaking <laughs> out right now and I have to share this. I got to tell you, but you can't tell a soul. He goes, Don't tell me. <laughs> we don't keep secrets in here. He goes, I'll tell if you tell me. I said, You can't. And I'll said, tell bro, if
0: you tell me.
1: I said, Bro, Ruben's... I got to tell somebody. Wait, it's not... hang on, Jason. Ruben. He thought I was going to say, I got a pound of blow in my suitcase, right? <laughs> but I tell him, that's me on the radio. And he's like, get the F out of here. Cause everybody's lying through their teeth in rehab, trying to make themselves feel bad. That's me on the radio. Yeah, I did this, right? And so I started singing along with it. And he f- he's going-
0: uh, Rufus is having a nervous break. Rufus, come over here. Come over here. Somebody's out on my front door. That is a crazy story. You started singing?
1: just a a line to show him and he goes that is you of course it got out which was another great opportunity for me because i diffused it as i always have throughout my life is that somebody's kind of flipped out and nervous i love diffusing it because it's i I learned that from champlain from the guys in chicago just really down to earth and not you know not star time you know so but that's that's the arc of what happened with that and and that song went to number three, number three, pop. One of the biggest Chicago hits I was in and that was it. Wow.
0: Know? That is so
1: crazy 30 plus years later. And I, I, I wrote uh, what kind of man would I be that you heard the other night with the symphony that went to number five. So I was in felt comfortable.
0: Okay. So now tell me what it was like um, when you first hit the stage And what it was like being part of the band at the beginning. Well, you kind of have touched on you you, in the studio, but being a part of the band on the stage, the audience, and how was the audience with you?
1: The audience, as I've seen, and Robert Lamb has, has stated this so perfectly. Chicago is an experiment. It's a logo that, we have all created a body of work. And I don't feel bad about saying this, but because I've lived this and I've seen well before I was there and during my years that it is multi-generational and it keeps going that in 200, 300 years, this music and songbook will be revered, played, studied, like any of the works of the greatest classical composers in the world, because we will be classical at that point. And my first first, um, experience with that to see that was the first day I walked on stage. Peter Cetera is iconic. He's the gold standard. He is the tenor voice of that band leading up to that moment. And for, to be honest, for for a good while, I was always feeling, well, you, just like Nathan East, you're really like the replacement guy, like the afterthought. There's no way you can be that. But guess what? When you start contributing and you make some of the biggest hits with the band, you have your era Absolutely. and guys like Rascal Flatts that say, you're the guy. Right. We When we got into this band, you're the singer, dude. Right,
0: right. We love
1: Cetera, but we came up on you, Right. You know? So it's like, it's amazing. I just, one day you just realize, accept it. This is your life, right? So the day, the first day I walked on stage in Rockford, Illinois, Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick, who are from Rockford, Rick was standing on the side of the stage. So he's like, surreal. I'm standing there and there's Rick. Yeah. We go on stage and there's all these people with signs out there saying, welcome, Jason.
0: Oh. They wanted
1: their band to, like, they still do. It it doesn't matter doesn't matter who's up there this is this this is the soundtrack to their life and i get it elton john's on his farewell tour right i believe he'll still be playing vegas and whatever you know of course but but he's on his farewell tour that's a huge part of my life the day elton john is not available to go in and in here Mm -hmm. or hate to say the day that he's he's not here anymore if God he goes forbid, before yeah. me if he goes before me there's a part of me that's gone you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so that's what the music is that's what the music is it's a part of so they, they're hanging on for dear life and i so i love that because we're a part of it we we created it and i didn't think it was going to work you know so so the first night Like I said, I always felt comfortable as a bass player. I knew from note one when we went out there, we were killing it. It was a phenomenal band. Still is. It's just always going to maintain a standard of excellence. But man, Danny, me, Bill, Dwayne Bailey. Sorry for all that binging. People are, (laughs) are, I don't know if you're hearing that, but they're sending texts. It's like, stop texting me. I'm talking Vicky. <laughs> but but it was it yeah was, by it, the way
0: you're gonna to have to go back and read the comments after this because a lot of your friends are, are okay great chatting it up yeah
1: yeah so so it was as a bass player mm-hmm. bang man that was like you know and so we hit the ground running and these guys gave me that opportunity to grow as a vocalist you know mm-hmm. and i listen to you know once in a while i hear the early early live stuff and and i and i could see when i was tentative and was really not comfortable going all out but plus it was a lot the thing i learned too vicky was that i was singing probably 70 percent of the of the at least 60 to 70 percent of the night oh hell yeah and we were doing a two-part show so i had to pace myself and by the way that's technique that's seth riggs i forgot to tell you that part that my mom bought me a, a vocal lesson my 21st birthday she tricked me because it was expensive (laughs) so I couldn't blow it off and I went into to you know thinking I was going to do my one and only vocal lesson with Seth Riggs again spotted me and said you got to keep coming here man Mm. So a good year year and a half of vocal training with Seth Riggs prepared me for when this opportunity happened that I could go out there and have the stamina and do the the two-part shows but I was pacing myself to not like blow my my voice out on like on 25 or six to four I, at the very beginning i was definitely you know kind of tiptoeing around some of that high stuff but developed later into just powering out full voice and as you heard i still you know thanks to seth you know i um, still got that range but that yes just, you do that was just technique by going and getting the reps and, and getting prepared so um so it was, everybody was saying, we want you here. The fans, everything, so.
0: Okay, so, because we have to talk about the White Album. and We have to talk about what you're doing. Yep. So how, so what, so 30 years. 30 yep. years! Yep. That is a long-ass time. So what was your life like? And because, Chicago, okay, so my friend Lauren Gold is in Chicago now. What ray they they're always playing what's your life like for that 30 years
1: somebody asked me the other day like they were like you know how how are you able to do it
0: yeah you know?
1: and it's it's easy because it's all i ever knew mm. again it was like being 23 and really 24 to get on on the road and never stop was the and we used to talk about it that we yeah we we used to talk about how not many people could really pull that off but it was i really believe again it's it's part of the training that allows me to to continue to do this because all those reps you know and learning how to how to really pace yourself once i had a family you know and was starting to miss you know parts of my life and everything you know it's that part starts entering into it but the actual stamina of going out there and doing it plus i was sober i got sober two weeks into that really helped
0: wow yeah of course
1: um and just taking care of yourself yeah and then how
0: about your family jason um how long you and tracy married
1: coming up on 30 years
0: oh okay so how did, so how did you manage that? How did you manage to fall in love and, and and get married and start a family and do all that while you're on the road all the time?
1: Well she was she was really, if not the first, like probably the second girl that I really pursued without having an indication that she was interested in me. <laughs> I don't know where that came from because that's not me. you know, I got my heart broken in high school. Once that just made me gun shy to ever put myself mm. out there, unless they were really showing that they were interested. But she didn't, and I know she wasn't playing games. But I, I reached out to her and pursued her, and she told me that was that was a turn on because she knew she wasn't giving an indication. But it just was, it was just right, you know. And she's very independent and had two kids of her own that I raised with her. They were four and six, and. Um, And so it was, again, it was, she's the perfect wife for a life like this. And in 2015, you know, so this is, this is how I ended up coming home is in 2015, her mother had breast cancer and thought she'd beaten it Hmm. and came back. And so her father was, you know, had certain health issues, but, you know, watching his queen, his wife declining over a period of five, six years, in 2015, when it was it had come back and they were, had her on all the, the medications and everything, um, mm-hmm. her father unexpectedly passed first. And that was the mm-hmm. end of 2015. Mm-hmm. And I saw my wife. That was the moment that I saw somebody that was really vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And her mother still battling her cancer. Once they told her that the treatment is not working, so now we're going to put you officially into hospice state. Which I learned what that meant didn't mean she was going to be gone in a week because a lot of times they're in hospice and they're gone two or three days. No, it meant they're not going to treat the illness anymore because it's futile. It's not going to. That's when I called management and said I got to go home and take care of my family because her mom obviously is going to be gone and. My wife is not going. to, I'm not going to leave her to fend for herself. Mm. So in 2016, we finished. You know, we did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We we had a um, a really great tour with Earth, Wind, and Fire, um, finishing at Madison Square Garden, sold out in April. Mm. And uh, that's when I came home to take care of my my people. And it's um, you know, her mom passed a couple months later. And it's that time of your life where, you know, I mean, we're we're getting older and and we're losing a lot, you know. Um, little did I know too, and I, a lot of people know this, but, you know, through our disease, Vicky, we lost one of the kids, man, Clarky. He was thirty, and so our mom went first, so and then uh, Clarky. It's been almost four years, so mm-hmm. that's why I had to come home. You don't even realize it. But something's telling you, you're either because I've seen, and you know, and it was really sweet when I told the guys, and they totally understood. Lamb, when I told them what was going on at home, and I heard basically what I heard as a groan of understanding. Mm-hmm. I've watched not only that band, but other bands that just stay out there. And I understand it, there's a responsibility, and especially for guys like lamb panko lockney and they that's their songbook, you know that from the beginning right and they don't have those issues of parents that are that are maybe ailing you know um but for me it was that moment and and um you know i'll never be able to thank them enough for understanding and bringing me into the family for the at first you know and then just um you know. Get so they, the, so you know, they
0: were, they totally understood that you had yep. to go and, and oh, yeah. you left on good terms and all yeah, of that. Absolutely. Was... Yep. And no regrets, I assume.
1: Not at all. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I can only imagine being 6,000 miles away rather than six feet away when my wife got the call that Clark was gone. I was so grateful that I was standing right there, you know. Yeah. So, it all makes sense, you know, um, and Lauren's a great friend of mine too. I love Lauren Gold. Uh,
0: oh my God. I, yeah, we were just in touch today. I, yeah, he's, yeah. he's a doll face.
1: Um,
0: so, okay. So by the way, you were talking about Elton so much when, when Snuffy and I were in London, we were staying at the Langham in the, and Elton's band was there. And so we ate breakfast with Kim every, every mm. morning and, and, uh, mm and uh, we we were we were this close, trying to decide whether to go to the show we really wanted to go to the show and and uh but there was also yeah i don't know anyway we didn't go and i'm i'm beating myself up that we didn't go we tried to work it out on a night anyway so okay um did you did you have you seen the did you see the farewell tour did you go to um
1: i didn't you know nigel's a very good friend of mine He's actually he's he's playing drums on one of the tracks I'm working up for my new solo project. Nice. and singing background vocals with me. It's an, it's pretty insane. It sounds like Elton John background vocals because I have Nigel on tape. Yeah.
0: And,
1: um, but I've seen them several times over the years. He's always taken care of me, but I didn't want to reach out and and uh, I mean
0: everybody I, in the world was. Well, actually,
1: the appropriate thing would you buy your tickets, you know, and yeah. just go. Um, so that that yeah, but you know what. Yeah, there was a part of me that just kind of felt like I've seen it enough times. And that might even be sad to like go as a fair because I'm seeing Davy Johnstone putting Instagram posts up, and it's it's pretty bizarre. Actually, I'm I'm gonna blog about this and post pretty soon because this means a lot to me. It's what I was just talking about that when that thing is over, there's a part of you that's over.
0: Yeah.
1: I've got goodbye yellow brick road, I bought. Not a reissue, but an old L- vinyl LP that's sitting in my other room that I, I do most of my work in. Sitting there, just tactile to open it up. And, you know, and I bought this like three months ago. I got a, I got an eight-track cassette tape of... Um,
0: eight-track Hon- cassette tape. Honky
1: Chateau, because that's where I <laughs> discovered Elton. My mom had an eight-track player in that, so I bought one. I have that right. eight-track sitting there. I've got the single of Rocket Man, which is the first record that I ever bought, which meant my grandmother gave me the money <laughs> and now he's now he's on a farewell tour, which I know he's gonna be
0: of the course.
1: Guy, the guy's not done playing. He's just no. not touring, and I don't blame him. Park yourself in Vegas and stay there,
0: of course he will. yeah, of course he will. yeah, so all right, so. So you did you, you're done with the drugs, you're not doing Chicago. Is there a is there a, like a road hang up? Is it great to be well, you're going through all this trauma? Well, wait, I have a question before we mm. we get into life after the road. Is it hard on your marriage? I mean, I can only imagine. I know Tracy's very independent. She's what a great woman. I only met her for ten minutes, and I love yeah. her. Yeah, um, she's she's wild and and wonderful. But is it hard on a relationship? To, I, I would only I can only imagine that it is challenging. Um, or is it? Or did you guys just have it down?
1: We were just lucky, and then had a. She's so independent. Mm. always was always has been in her relationships. so she's the perfect person for me to Mm. you know not have like you know super neediness and same thing with me you know i just came back from um i had a generation radio show last night july 4th in uh, charlotte north carolina and it's funny because i was i think i was talking to my friend ira dean who was in trick pony the bass player and i said you know it's so funny man i literally was thinking i've been on the road so much and this mm-hmm. is this is the battle cry if you're lucky enough to have been in something that long you inevitably are going to go through a phase and i've heard every single person that has been involved in something like that say i gotta get out of here i gotta get off the road yeah got it. i gotta get off the road right mm-hmm. and then you usually just get through it because i've heard you know everybody talk about it but it's you know if it's your life it's your life you're you know right. don't do it so me taking this break you know to to uh be able to take care of my family and all this stuff really was you know was that i i, I knew i had to do it and um really enjoyed no responsibilities not having to be anywhere. Um, just taking time off. Did but you now, take
0: time? Did you take time off? Before I moving? literally
1: for a year didn't touch my instrument.
0: No kidding.
1: Didn't sing a note. It was really. One, oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic. It was just a mm. new life, mm. you know, but mixed with okay a lot so of, now
0: coming back together was it weird for you and tracy to now be together all the time well after no having because all this independence
1: no because number one we we really like each other
0: which is a good thing yeah
1: we like each other as well as love each other you know like crazy but we like each other coupled with we were about ready to go through some really traumatic stuff yeah and, and on a, and a, each other you yeah. know I love that I'm part of a, a fellowship mm-hmm. that talks about real stuff because in those unimaginable mm-hmm. circumstances, I don't even really like to call them gifts or blessings, but the amazing, profound lessons that come out of that stuff mm-hmm. that you're just not going to get anywhere else. So the So Tracy and I, at that point in our lives, Having to come together and be together a lot was a real good thing. Mm -hmm. Again, like I said, to be that close to her when the shit was hitting the fan. Mm -hmm. With all of it, her mother, our son, you know, the whole thing. Thank you, whatever is out there, up there, for putting me in the right place where I needed to be, you know and and in that regard it's so funny some people may just look at the whole you know flashing lights part of all this of like being in entertainment and you know mm-hmm. being a part of some pretty major music history and everything but when i look at whatever has been looking out for me my entire life and putting me in the right places that's part of it that when you really need to be present you are you know so it's uh i love
0: that jason so okay so we've been talking for a long time but we're going to talk a little bit longer because i have to ask you oh my god okay so i sent you the picture joey mullen bad finger played i i, I was a rock and roll promoter of this club this size on Bleecker street in the 80s and they joey they played 80 people fit in the club, maybe a hundred. And uh, it was 1988. And um, I was so high that they, they literally held me up, but, um, but you and Joey and Mickey who played my living room and Todd Rundgren. Oh my God. Now, what is this? Why get together and do the Beatles white album? What? How did this, how did this come to be? Who started it? Who instigated and how did you pick who was going to
1: jay demarcus of rascal flats has been a friend of mine since 2002 i think Mm -hmm. and we have a band now called generation radio as you know he always said when things settle down for both of our bands Mm -hmm. let's do something together so we we did we put it together have one record out going to start the next one ferroni's going to do the next one with us um jay was beating the bushes in nashville to see if there are any agents that were interested in looking at made just book on solo things mm-hmm. and this one agent gave him a number and said have jason call toby ludwig i think that these guys might might uh, hit it off so i talked to toby and toby's a manager and a concert producer
0: mm-hmm.
1: he manages christopher cross you forgot to mention Christopher. I forgot
0: there. to mention Christopher Cross. This right. little guy, Christopher Cross.
1: So he manages Christopher, the OJ's Commodores, minus Lionel, of course, um, Maxi Priest, and so he said, "Hey, I've got a, I've got a tour. We're looking mm-hmm. for a bass player, singing bass player with a pedigree for an all-star lineup. Are you interested?" And Jay was asking him, "Who is it?" And he goes, "I can't tell you." He goes, "Come on, man." <laughs> You can trust us. So anyway, he he said, it's Todd Rundgren, Christopher Cross, Mickey Dolenz, and Joey Mullins. And I said, absolutely, I'm interested in that. So I started, I went out and we had a blast. And I didn't know what to make of, you know, all these personalities, because these are icons, right? And I'd always heard about Todd. I was not a freak Todd Rundgren fan. I appreciated what he did, but I was not a freak like I know a lot of my friends.
0: There are some, I know people that like travel the world with like crazy ass stuff.
1: Yeah, so those are fans, but I'm talking about- You're talking
0: about musicians that are- I'm talking
1: about legitimate record producers, brilliant record producer musicians and artists that are like Todd Rundgren's the be all end all. I don't quite get it, but since you get it, I'm intrigued. So I'm thinking I'm gonna learn something from being around this guy. And Uh and I don't even know that it's specifically about music. Uh And I met him, and he's not a like a warm and fuzzy guy, you know. And I'd always heard how sarcastic he is, which Uh I am too. So I thought this could be cool. Uh And my buddy John Field said, with Todd. If you bring the music, he's gonna love you, so you'll be fine. And so I go, cool, man. So we go out there, and he's not like, you know, hey, man, how you doing? It's like, okay. you know, it's like, nice to meet you, you know. And we start making music, and it just it clicks. And again, it's not like you know this exuberant personality, but but I know he likes me, right. and so we start really hitting it off and and uh, really doing well with the music. And the first thing that I saw with him. That I really big lesson. Yeah, is this tour? We you know we we didn't have a ton of time to to prepare for it, which I like. I like weird. How, how, mu-
0: what's, how much time is not a ton of time?
1: A couple of days of rehearsal, maybe three. Oh
0: wow! Okay. Maybe
1: three <laughs> days of rehearsal. Okay. And it's a white album. It's not the like. It's, yeah it's nonsensical stuff not like yes. really symmetrical and i know
0: you're friends with will lee right you're yes indeed he should and have. so will's story about the white at will has great stories because he was on his honeymoon and he oh. was learning in the garage the nonsensical stuff during right the, anyway yeah
1: oh it's 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 bizarre so so we show up there and mickey at first was like i didn't know where he was at man he was like he didn't seem like super connected to everything only to come to find because his beautiful wife donna as we all started getting to know each other and everything he was nervous and i'm like thinking why is he nervous but she's like he's like nervous because he's around like what he considers like super heavyweight musicians and i'm going yeah but we're not going to act weird or anything and the minute he saw that we were cool he really, again that's like the, that whole diffusing thing mm-hmm. the minute this pack of people got together we were we were riding down down the road on a bus one night early and it was a, it was so beautiful vicky because all of a sudden i'm realizing because i'm going what's todd runburn going to be like is he going to be sitting in the back I, I have the back lounge and you got guys- <laughs> you know, like whatever, pecking order, never anything like that. Wow. We're on the bus and it's like three in the morning. Mm -hmm. All of us are up in the front lounge. Every one of us laughing, talking, telling stories. And it's like, everybody's hanging.
0: So Todd became one of the guys. So Todd was one of the guys.
1: It's not that he became one. He was from day one. He was never. So
0: cool. He wants well, to. Well, I thought when you very first met him, he was a little, no? Well, well it's,
1: he's just not a warm and fuzzy guy. Okay. That's him. I mean, it's right.
0: like,
1: you know, he's not going to come running up and, hey, man, really great <laughs> to meet you. And, and you know, no, mm-hmm. he's, he's like very matter of fact and mm. super bright you know as you know he's a genius pretty much you know intellect and um he's and the thing so the lessons is he's all about the music which is how i am right rest of it is like jive man you know it's like listen we'll do what we got to do but at the end of the day you better deliver man you know that's what it's all about and if you deliver we're all good if you don't we got a problem right so he's so we're all in the front bus. And then all of a sudden, at one point, Mickey, who I discovered how brilliant this guy's mind is, he's the funny one, right? He's like yep. the, the funny monkey, but he's a smart dude. Oh, yeah. Into astrophysics and all, right? Just deep, deep intellect. So all of a sudden, we're sitting there and Mickey, just out of nowhere. So anybody who's watching this, who's a Monkeys fan, just imagine this. You're on a bus with Todd Rundgren, Christopher Cross. Joey Molland and Mickey Dolenz just stands up and goes, "Okay, enough of the small talk. Why do we have to die? (laughs) And I went, oh, this is going to get good. And Todd launches into, well, it's because our DNA keeps fraying. If we could find a way so that our DNA didn't fray. And I'm going, oh, this is going to go down the rabbit hole. I love it. (laughs) Those guys just started in and it was beautiful. I had to go to sleep because it just kept getting so (laughs) deep and esoteric, but that's what it was like. And it was just a thing.
0: Wow. That's just crazy. And then then the music, I mean, then when you guys like made the music, what was that like? Well,
1: Here's what was fun about it was that when you think about it, because nobody really planned this, but this is how it ended up. And it started off a little ragged because, you know, we were just trying to get up and running. But once we got our footing, like a a handful of shows in, it started rocking, man. And we Mm -hmm. started word of mouth was getting out. We were starting to sell out. And because what it was, if you think about it, I was laughing saying that it's really like the evolution of man. Okay. You got Christopher Cross standing all the way to the right of the stage. And he's just standing and delivering. There's no performance really per se Mm -hmm. of Christopher Cross. He doesn't need to. That voice is. How do you guys
0: decide who's going to do what songs?
1: Todd, uh, they asked me what I wanted to do, and I said, "Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to pick songs that I know that Christopher Cross is going to want to do." So I'll tell you what. Let's hear from him. Let's hear from Todd, and then let's just kind of talk about it. And as it turned Mm. out on the white album, what was really cool was that I ended up with a lot of John Lennon stuff, which isn't what normally I would be the guy you would talk, but I loved it. Glass Mm. Onion, Julia.
0: Nice. Really
1: cool stuff, right? And so I was able to, to, you know, flex some different muscles. Hey, are you trying to copy John Lennon? There it is, right? It's like, hey, I'm just performing the music. But what what the whole vibe was, Vicky, was that you got Christopher Cross, who's just standing there and delivering, delivering, you get Joey Molland, who's who's got some moves. He's like the the regal. So like, know.
0: what's Joey doing? Like, name a song that Joey did. Can he did.
1: You think? He did uh, Revolution. Um, he did uh, Savoy Truffle, things like that. Um, I can't remember the other stuff. That's but okay. so. So here's the vibe across the stage. So then you get you get Joey, who's you know he's kind of this British royalty in his in his suit. Then you get uh me who's right in the middle i'm the muso but i like to move you know so i like to entertain also so i'm right in the middle this is the evolution of man then you get todd Rundgren, who is theater right Right. this is a performance artist he's still very musical but it's it's really about costume changes bungalow was like hilarious with his squirt gun it was like you know so he's like he's like right there and then you get mickey Dolan's, which is vaudeville he's just out it's the evolution of man you get hardly any movement all the way to make it was beautiful rocky raccoon he was amazing so we've all fantasized about doing that tour again
0: wow i would love to see it oh my god all right so connection we're going to close with connection radio so tell me about this
1: tell me about this connection radio oh generation radio.
0: generation radio i'm sorry
1: connection you're you're going back <laughs> to the drug days um
0: generation radio
1: so as i said jay demarcus mm-hmm. first of all he left me a, a a letter in 2002 or 2003 at this gig in washington state the washington state fair um basically saying Chicago is the reason I play music, and I've particularly followed your era of the career. That was the moment when I realized, okay, Jason, you are part of what has inspired a generation of artists that are really successful. Mm-hmm. Rascal Flats is crediting you for being a big part of what makes them tick, as well as Cetera and the stuff, but you're the guy. Because they're 10 years younger than me. So they when they were really getting into the radio, I was the voice they were hearing. Right. So Jay reached out and said, Hey, I, I'd just love to write with you. We're going to make our third record there to what now eight or nine. He said, Our third record. And so I i heard their music and I said, Whoa. You know, so I called him and we just became fast friends and have been buddies ever since. And like I said, he's he said, uh, you know, when things calm down for us, let's put something together. And Dean Castronovo wasn't in Journey at the time. And so um, he said, what about Dean, man? We did a crossroads with him and he's incredible. I said, I love it. Called Dean. Dean was like, I can't believe this, man. I love both you guys, man. So we all got together and it was just magic. This record we made was, the concept was that we were going to take Journey, Chicago, and Rascal Flats. And that was our set list. Pretty insane. Wow. You know, from the guys that were in the band, you know? So it's wow. almost it's kind of a tribute but our our tagline is we're a tribute to ourselves (laughs) (laughs) right so so we put this together and we started playing live and neil shone was watching us like a hawk watching Mm -hmm. watching dean so they needed him to come and do lollapalooza with them um and the minute that that happened i knew that he was going back in the band as he should that's his gig yeah. and you know we had put all this energy into making this record and dean was really sorry you know saying man i am so sorry i said no no, no. that's where you need to be and i told jay never fear steve ferroni <laughs> is here <laughs> i called steve and i go hey man he goes uh, absolutely let's do it so you know we're in no uh um, you know no bad position drummer wise you know so mm-hmm. so that's going on it's wonderful we're going to make our second record we just we got a handful of dates throughout the rest of the year so i'm doing that jay's running a record label successfully out in nashville called red street records they're a christian and a country label um, i've got a record i'm working on that i've I've gone back to all of the guys that i came up listening to that have become my friends um icons michael O'Mardian is all over my record who produced christopher cross's breakout record piano players played on tons of steely dan records ricky don't lose that number so Mm. terras um next time i fall bobby caldwell co-wrote and um glory of love that's michael omardian so omardians all over my new project it's i'm trying to trying to get it done by the end of the year it might be the beginning of next year i got ferroni John Robinson, Vinnie Colaiuta, all the old cats, man, like to make music the way I came up listening to it. Not trying to be modern, working on that and doing dates on my own. You know, three symphony dates so far this year, and a yeah. handful of uh, my own solo band. Just did Epcot Center, so you know, I'm just I'm gone enough to where it's fun, but I need to be with my family again. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could be gone as much as I had in the past with what's happened, you know, with all the loss in our life. So,
0: well, Jason, I, for one, I'm glad you're here. Cause I I'm going to get to, I'm going to get to hear you more. So are you going to be gigging locally anywhere that we can come see you?
1: Not, not at the current moment, but, okay. uh, but we're looking at, you know,
0: well, I hope you make that happen. Cause Me I want to be there because I so enjoyed seeing you last week.
1: Thank you. And, Love having uh, you. I'm glad you guys stayed till the end.
0: Oh, hell yeah. We weren't going anywhere. I was like, why is this over now? No, we want more.
1: That made me feel so good.
0: Um, And I also, it's not just, you know, oh, Rufus is going to make me crazy. It's not just the, the, the music and, and your, your ethics in that regard, but it's also that the, the men that you are the person that you are, the sweetheart that you are, the loyalty of the people who love you, your fans, Rufus, <laughs> Um just and you are so loved. I mean, everybody who came out to see you last week—it was so beautiful to behold all the love in 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 that section of of those people who were just your people—and and, and it was so much more than just the music. It's it's Jason, Jason love. It was Jason Thank love. You. Thank and, you. um, and so I'm a fan and, um, and thank you so much for doing this. And I, uh, and, and for taking so much time and, and, and telling, sharing so much of yourself with us and, uh, we're going to go to dinner. Let's do dinner.
1: Okay. And I, I tell you, I, I love having been Luis Conte's sub today.
0: <laughs> well, As, you, you were going to do it in, in two weeks. I know. You just, you no, just, What I
1: flipped. like being a sub. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to dinner.
0: And thanks for jumping in for Luis. Yes. My pleasure. All right. Say hi to Tracy.
1: I sure will. Take care. See you guys soon. Thanks so
0: much. Bye bye.